Greetings and welcome to Office Hours. If you are new here and you want to learn a little bit more about what we do, head over to officehours.global. Our first hour, we answer your questions on media and digital productions of all kinds. And our second hour is typically something that we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we'll be speaking with product specialist Kevin O'Connell from Descript the editing tool, AI generated, and he will also be doing a tutorial with us. So you want to stay tuned for the second hour. And producers, go ahead and get your questions in early. And speaking of questions, let's jump into them. Our first one, Liberty, comes from Douglas Carmichael. And Douglas asks, what are some useful tools for checking a final mix to make sure it translates to mul multiple listening environments? Jeffrey? My favorite tool is simply a notepad. And basically what I'll do is, is I'll, if, if I'm here and I'm editing, I will listen to the song completely. And if I find an anomaly, something, you know, I hear something, I will write down that time mark. And then if I move to the car and, and listen on the car, I'll do the exact same thing. I will not stop and go back and hear it again. Because the, the reason why is because I want to come back here and listen to it and find that specific thing and hear what I hear here what I heard in the car, what I heard on the AirPods, what I heard on the, you know, the cheap $20 uh, headphones that I, that I listened through, things like that. That way I don't get distracted by one anomaly. I keep listening so I can hear the rest. And then I've got all those marks on a notepad. So if a week from now I come back to that same uh, piece of music, I can double check to see if I, if I still hear that stuff. And Alexander? Yeah, I come with this from a, both a hardware and a software angle. Uh, from a software perspective, uh, Sonarworks makes a suite of really great plugins, not only for calibrating the headphones that you check your mixes on, but also for calibrating your near-field studio monitors. You can also emulate other types of speakers and other types of headphones. So from a software perspective, that's always very, very useful. Always check your mix in mono, make sure it translates properly, because unfortunately a lot of people these days tend to listen in mono with these little pillbox types of speakers. I always like to have at least one set of my main reference studio monitors, uh, and then also another set of smaller speakers to check the mix on and see if it translates there as well. Aventone makes a product called the Mix Cubes, which are basically designed to help you um, check your mix on speakers that are typically bass challenge, like the types of you know cheap speakers that are in a car, that sort of thing. And then always have a really good set of headphones uh, to check the mix on. Then of course, you can always check your mix on uh, other speakers as well. Like uh, just put it in your car and see how it sounds there. And Alex. Uh, yeah. I will argue that until you've heard it in the environment that you hear it in, you don't know what it'll sound like. <laughs> so you have to listen to it in multiple different environments. You can try to simulate it. But in general, what you want to do is if you're going to play it in a theater, you need to hear it in a theater. If you're going to play it in a car, you want to listen to it in the car. If you want to listen to the pillbox, you want to listen to it through a pillbox. But you really have to um, listen to it in those environments. And you have to be careful that they're not too clean. One of the problems that they had, um, is I was at least told a story that at Lucasfilm, they had a problem in the Stag Theater where they were mixing, where they're listening to mixes that, uh, that the, that it was so clean that there's a lot of things that got lost in translation when it went out to an actual theater. So they had to kind of figure out ways to simulate bad theaters um, so that they understood what it was going to sound like when it wasn't reproduced at the same level and making sure that it still carried over. Next question. 
Gus Libby in Satellite Beach, Florida says, I know you've covered this, but could we get a list of do's and don'ts for a local four-piece band playing in a local movie theater? We'll be recording the show, but not live streaming. Go ahead, Jeffrey. There's still a little bit of unknown here. Like, for instance, uh, well, well, we'll talk about if is this going to be for a show? Is there going to be a film behind you? Are you going to uh, are you going to have an audience in there, or is this going to be for a music video? Um, is there a stage on the theater, or are you going from a hard floor, like a concrete floor? Because now what you have to deal with is uh, there's always that pitch that's going up on a movie theater, and you always have to fight to that. Because I always try to go uh, and get that sound to get at least to the middle, where, uh, where I would call the sweet spot is, the middle of the room, middle height, and everything like that. Playing on the stage, if you're not playing a film behind you and there's curtains that can be drawn, draw those curtains. If you're playing in the center of the stage as opposed to the corner of the stage, if, if there's some sort of performance going on in, in the middle, you have to be concerned on that. Uh, is there a pit? And if you're not playing in a pit, sometimes those pits become resonance. And you, and you might have to deal with a lot of extra boominess from this open area that's just collecting sound as you're going. Um, so those are, those are some of the factors that I would uh, bring in there and some of the do's and don'ts that I could extrapolate from that. Go ahead, Bill. Jeffrey had a good list. The other thing I would check, and this one might seem a little counterintuitive. You think I'm in a commercial movie space. There should be no problem with power. But depending on the theater, that power may be mostly into the projection room. And the regular outlets may be just in a, in, you know, not very powerful 15-watt circuits. And if you plug a bunch of amplification in there, you may have power issues. So I would check power. I would check the audio profile of the room. And also just make sure today in the modern era, there's usually not anybody in a theater who really understands their technical specs that well. So I would go in very early and do a very substantial tech check to see what you actually are going to be working with. Don't make assumptions that you're going to have plenty of power and things like that just because it's a commercial building. Next question. Next one comes to us from Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York. Morning, guys. How many different web controllers are possible using one companion interface? Jeffrey? Oh, wow. Sky's the limit. 32 buttons for one companion instance. You can extend that to even more. If you're talking on one computer, you're only dealing with uh, the resources from that single computer. But if, you, uh, if you're talking multiple machines and multiple pieces of hardware that do accept a companion uh, from that, then you, can, you could set up page upon page upon page. It's just about trying to find the right page to get to to control that. Next question. Richard, looks like Bullman in Defiance, Ohio, says, how do we protect those with mental illness from hallucinating chat box? And he has a reference there, and the reference says something about a man uh, ending his life after an AI chat box encouraged him to sacrifice himself to stop climate change, I suppose. Go ahead, Courtney. Keep them away from computers. Uh, it's not just chatbots that are the problem. You know, there's a million people with... Uh, quack opinions and trying to sell books on ancient aliens and miracle cures and all that stuff on, on almost every uh, social media platform. Uh, there is a way on the chatbot if people tend to take them the veracity uh, 
you know, take them for the truth. There's there's adjustments. This is the Bing uh, chatbot. You can click on the little B in the corner of the Edge browser, and you can adjust its uh, its precision here of its response. It can go creative, balanced, or uh, precise. And you you set those settings there, and then its answers will be limited to you know if you set it to precise, uh, its answers will be uh, based on a different uh, large language model that is uh, more moderated and checked for accuracy. Creative lets it uh, you know lets its freak flag flow, and it gets more creative and out of the box thinking and balanced is kind of a combination of the two. So by setting all the uh, by choosing the precision of your answers in the chatbot, and I think uh, uh, probably ChatGPT4 has a way to, to adjust its precision and accuracy as well by now, uh, you can adjust its answers and make sure that you try and keep it on the accurate side. Jeffrey? I, I think the only thing that you can do is, is create awareness, and because it's always going to happen. I mean... In the 70s, uh, it, it, even with like teletype machines, or uh, I remember in the 80s, it was about D&D. There was message boards in the 90s. There was, it, it just seems to find a way to creep in. So being aware of somebody's, uh, somebody's what they're doing and, and, how, and how they're communicating back and forth. I, I've been playing with uh, Vana, V-A-N-A, which basically made uh, AI versions of your face they went into the chat bot uh, about a few weeks ago and the specific chat bot where they learn from what you say and what you do to create a chat bot of yourself so you can actually be talking to yourself uh back and forth so these are things that you know if handled right you can have a lot of fun but they could definitely take you down the wrong rabbit hole uh so being very aware of who 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 is doing this and what they're doing and and communicating them, keeping them grounded in the real world is probably the best way to do that and make sure that they're they're talking to somebody, a professional, um, and uh, hopefully uh, resolving their issues. John? According to this article, Liza is based on ChatGPTJ, which I have experience with, and it's, a, it's an open source version of uh, Transformer, ChatGPT. Um, and the model was built by stability.ai which are the leaders in the open source community with very little guardrails on this on this source code and so open ai spending a lot of time about guardrails and and tangentially um hallucination is the word that open ai uses when they go off the guardrails and this is open ai's main focus now is to provide guide rails for for this sort of thing not happening go ahead alex uh, you can go to almost any time in the last 10,000 years and find examples of people doing crazy things because socially they thought it was a good idea. You know, like, so so the, there's no new tale to tell here. Um, you're going to see edge cases. They're going to show up on the news. Um, but people have been crazy since there were people. And Bill. And I, to follow on to Alex's point, not even just crazy. I remember the stories in Orson Welles' War of the Worlds back in the 1950s when people actually got in a little bit late and believed there were Martians and there were people in the Midwest and other places, I'm not targeting them, who went out in their fields with shotguns ready to meet the Martians that were coming. It's not that it's irrational. It's just that you get yourself in a mental mindset where you believe something, and good art can be pretty believable. Uh, and then if you don't have some context, it's easy to take action against things that are fantasy. 
And it's good to have this this conversation going back to what Jeffrey said, because these are some of the seemingly outlier things that will cause people to be concerned. And it's definitely an issue of concern, but how it impacts technology and the growth. Alex? I mean, the humans aren't very good at math. So what happens is we'll see news or, you know, news things about a person or about a handful of people and we'll make a decision that this is a systematic problem when it's, it, it may not be, <laughs> you know, like, and so, so I think that it's important to understand, okay, how many people are actually doing that? Not if one, per, there's lots of examples of one person doing something that is a huge anomaly from the, from the norm uh, and or even a handful of people or even thousands of people. But in the grand scheme of things, we have to kind of keep track of it. You know, there's there are things that we don't pay attention to. You know, corn syrup is probably more dangerous than most things in our life. Um, for, you know, high fructose corn syrup, is probably, it kills a lot of people. But we don't think about it much. We just keep on putting it in our cereal. Next question. Alexander Knight in Vancouver, B.C. Has anyone noticed the problem with Jon Stewart looks excessively dark in Dolby Vision? My Vizio TV has been calibrated as per uh, rtings.com, and I watch in a dark room. No issues with other HDR content. Alexander? Yeah, I just wanted to make an addendum since I posted this question because I, I put on the Tetris movie on Apple TV+, and I also noticed that was dark, too. But I don't have this issue with Blu-ray, with 4K UHD Blu-rays. So I'm not sure if it's the Apple TV entirely so far or if it's just the stuff on Apple TV Plus and the way they distribute that stuff. Jason? My Sony TV has Dolby Vision Bright and Dolby Vision Dark. As far as the problem is concerned, I, I think it's just a dark set. I think that's actually the set design. I think that's it's designed to basically exclude the audience entirely. And um, yeah, that just that ends up with with a bit of a dark feel. But no, I think that's very much by design. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, so I looked at the I looked at the footage. I haven't actually watched the film watched the show very much, but I did pop it up on an HDR screen to take a look at it before the show. And uh, what I will tell you as someone who's done a lot of HDR, I don't see anything wrong with it. I think that what they're doing is they're using a full gamut. So they're basically, what I mean by that is that they are actually using HDR for what it's built for. I don't see highlights that are, that are, that are um, overexposed. I don't see blacks that are being crushed. What I see is them allowing the, 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 the frame to do what it does. I mean, the problem you get into for most, in most cases is that if you're talking about SDR, which is what we're used to, you have a, a very tiny hundred nit range to work with. So the blacks never really get that black and the whites never really get that white. You know, it just, it just is a, it's an in-between uh, kind of mud. Uh, and uh, so when you go to HDR, uh, you have a lot more range and a lot more detail. And if you don't want to start crushing that down. Now, what a lot of people do when they try to make it work for SDR and HDR is they kind of ruin the HDR. They, they, they uh, uh, move the curve around so that you don't actually get to see all those details and see all those bits and pieces. They just bring everything up because people will complain. <laughs> and, and what Apple's doing, I think, is allowing the shot to be what it is and um, and allowing it to be you now i think that there are a couple things that they're doing that are a little bit more challenging one is you'll notice that a lot of people at least when i watched it a lot of people have white collars uh, one of the things that we do really quickly with uh, politicians and people being interviewed is when we send them recommendations we say please don't wear a white shirt <laughs> like you know please don't there are two shirts there are two there are three color shirts that we recommend against one is white one is black 
and the other is red because red doesn't compress well in H.264. So, um, so those are the three big colors that we try to get people to not wear. Uh, red is usually not very hard to get them to stop wearing, but black and white are, are harder and white, especially for politicians. And we really try to push towards a blue or a gray, um, especially if they have a darker complexion because it, it really makes, it, it makes an HDR signal very difficult to, to execute well. Um, so I think that that's part of what you're seeing there. They're also using uh, windows, uh, outdoor windows, it can make everybody inside <laughs> feel a little darker because uh, there's a lot of exposure and they are definitely carefully protecting that HDR. So one of the things we're no what I noticed there is I saw that they're not blowing anything out in the HDR, which is definitely going to make everything feel a little bit darker if you're not used to looking at that. But it's just because they're, I would say that what you're seeing there is a true HDR signal, not um, one that's been kind of... Uh, poured through a lukewarm filter to make SDR work as well. And Jeffrey. That's a lot of great information right there from Alex. Uh, I'm going to add, well, first of all, I watch everything on a 70-inch uh, Vizio TV myself. I don't, uh, I don't have any problems watching Jon Stewart uh, on that, but I will say that uh, if you have the captions turned on, that can definitely affect in a lot of HDR settings, like for instance, Severance. Can't, I cannot watch Severance with captions on because what happens is all that white background gets, all of a sudden it just dims down every time a new caption shows up and then comes back and it gets very annoying. So if you have captions, I'd turn them off. Next question. Zach Phillips is up next from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Okay, so you don't have $15,000 for an FR7. You have $3,000. You need to create the most cinematic image you can with a pan tilt zoom. 24 frames per second, same amount of shallow depth of field. What do you buy? Used equipment is fine, by the way. Go ahead, Noah. I feel like I'm filling out like a Scantron or something, you know, back in school for this. <laughs> um, for, for me, I'll try to address the question, then I'll wax on it a little bit too. So obviously we're aiming for a full frame sensor of some sort, right? We're trying to fit within the $3,000 budget. Um, so I'm going with the classic Sony FS5, which is a camera I've been using for years. Um, the A7 series is also great, and the FX3 is also a great camera as well, all within the Sony frame. Um, RS2 is a gimbal from DJI. Um, it's one generation older, but it's still like six, seven hundred bucks. So you can get that. You can use um, a phone to control that wirelessly. And so you'll be able to um, have a little bit of that pan tilt control. Um, in this case, if you're wanting something more cinematic, I'm leaning more towards a prime lens rather than um, a cheaper servo based lens, right? And that will give you that shallow depth of field. You have a lower f stop all that kind of fun thing. Um, another kind of tangent you can go down is looking up middle things on YouTube. They have um, a way to control that RS2 via an ATEM setup. So um, the, the disadvantage of this setup is it's going to be clunky. Um, it's going to be extra work to balance that gimbal every time. So I kind of want to double back and wax on the question a little bit of, um, it sounds like, and I, I don't know you personally, Zach, but that when you think of the FR7, you're like, I can never achieve this. It's this big, you know, expensive camera. You said 15 grand, it's actually 10. Um, and if you get it used, you can get it for about 8,500. So um, I would kind of double back to that and just think about, you know, how you're approaching this problem. Is it an investment? Is it a camera that you could be using and booking and um, earning money from in the long term? And then that price will be less intimidating if you think of it in that way. Alex? And I would say probably FX30, which is what I'm using right here, plus a RS2, which I'm, I haven't right over here that I haven't gotten installed. Um, you know, so uh, that's going to get you under $1,000 uh, and be able to do that. You're, the only uh, niggling part is what your uh, lens is going to look like. You know, so the lens that I have on this is a little bit more expensive. Um, so 
Uh, you may go over your 3000 with a lens on top of that. Now, the other thing to look at is the Sony 6400, I think, um, it, which is about $800. And then that would give you a little bit more headroom for the lens and for the RS2. Uh, the other thing to look at is possibly a data video PTZ head. Uh, it's about $2,100. It might put you over it, but that, you know, it's something that we're considering with, you know, tr how do we... <laughs> I'm very, I'm with you. I'm with you, Zach. I'm really excited about the FR7. Uh, I have uh, resigned myself to renting FR7s from 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 Noah. <laughs> so, so, so I don't have the FR7s. So I rent Noah's FR7s. Um, and uh, and I'm sticking with the smaller uh, FX30s and, uh, and smaller cameras, but I am looking for PTCs. So I'm going to be testing. You'll see me testing over the next week. Uh, the um, the uh, the RS2, and I'm but I'm also looking at things like the data video to build kind of a PTC head. And thank you for your questions so far. This is the time when we say you've got we've got more time in the show. So go ahead and submit those questions and prepare for a second hour as well. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What are good habits around using technology to reduce stress? How do you know when you have too much tech and how do you keep from over equipping yourself and getting too much screen time? Mm, Nigel. Yeah, I'm not sure about too much tech. Uh, I don't know whether that's such a thing, but uh, I can tell you one of the things I always tell people to do is beware of your email. So uh, email generally is full of, and social media as well, I suspect, uh, negative or bad things. Whenever I look at my work email, it's normally a list of things that have gone wrong or need fixing. So I try and pass a rule that says, I try not to do it first thing in the morning, and I try not to do it last thing at night and really try and limit the last hour and the first hour of my day away from the pain. I think the other thing is if you find yourself in front of iDevices or other devices like that, I would encourage you to put uh, the redshift on and take some of the blue light out before bedtime. Courtney? Uh, I use technology a lot of times to relieve stress. I find that uh, with your... Uh, smart speakers like the uh, A-Lady and the Google Home, you can uh, have it play uh, soothing sounds. You can, I like a distant thunderstorm, which is great. Uh, you know, we don't get too many of those in California. You guys down in the Tornado Alley probably would shy away from that. <laughs> but uh, uh, it's soothing, it's relaxing, and I find when I've got too much screen time, my eyes are having trouble focusing, I just get up and go for a walk. I don't take any technology with me. I'll take my cell phone just in my pocket for emergencies, but I won't be listening to anything. I won't be on social media. I won't. I'm never on social media anyway, but uh, I just go for a walk focused on the horizon. I let your eyes relax and uh, not look at anything close. And uh, go for a walk and let your mind sort things out. And you find that that's a way to, if you're, especially if you're trying to tackle problems, uh, uh, even technical problems, you know, getting away from the technology helps your brain sort it out and find solutions to your technical problems uh, by stepping away from them. Go ahead, Bill. But yeah, the step away thing can be a big deal. In fact, I was going to say that my solution to this is developing better friendships with smarter people. And the reason I say that, I, I got really stressed the last couple of days. I'm on big deadlines with a lot of uh, narration stuff that I have to do. And I had run into a problem I, in setting up the voice booth. I have a new computer there. And so I've been trying to get Final Cut working on it. And I was running into this stopper. And I know a lot of people in the Final Cut community. I realized this was an audio problem, though. So I called our friend Mickey and I arranged a little time to talk to him. And 
could I have solved that problem? Probably. I mean, I've been around Max for a long time, but having somebody to reach out to, to talk it over with, he and I, particularly him, he, he came up with the solution in the first five minutes and it solved the problem. So rather than going back to a stressful situation, having to keep working on it and keep working on it and keep working on it, reaching out to somebody with better expertise in a particular area uh, just took all the stress away and I was able to get it solved, get back to things today. And I think having friendships in the tech community and with people like we've met here on Office Hours makes all the difference when you have mission-critical work and you must get your tech right. That that team of people, the soft friendships you have behind here is just mission-critical. So many good gems. Noah? Yeah, there's a lot of layers there and there's a lot of layers in this question too. I think for me, I have to balance my time between being right here where we're, where we're at right now in this space and then my workshop in my backyard building stuff and working on things. So um, I'm the kind of person who loves working with my hands, but there's only so much of that I could do without wearing out my body. And there's only so much time I can spend in here staring at the screens um, working here. So I have to kind of balance between the two. Um, I'm also like Nigel, someone who um, figures out the blue um, glasses thing or um, a shading thing so there's more reds in your in your screen at night. Um, I think the glasses even take that one step further, which is super helpful too. I also like to work on, or do things other than work sometimes too on, on the computer. So I'll play video games or I'll try to do something that um, is less productive, but you know, it's, it's more working on myself. But I'm also um, trying to exercise, trying to do that regularly, and then um, get out in the sun, you know, get some vitamin D. That's always helpful. <laughs> um, but I, at the end of the day, I think my wife is the one who tells me when I'm spending too much time on my computer. <laughs> always helpful. Jason? A lot of great advice here. I, I think this comes back to the best way to block a punch is to not be there. In this case, what that means to me is to remember just how much control we have over these devices. They work for us. They work for electricity. They, they, don't, they don't work for our uh, satisfaction and enjoyment if, we, if we're not making them. So turn off the notifications that you don't need. You have a tremendous amount of control in that, just even your iPhone. Um, I don't use focuses, but I've had clients who have had tremendous luck with that. If you can switch a focus that'll basically give you insanely important notifications only, that can clear a whole lot of space in your head. Last year, I did this social media um, project called Project 50. And so it was 50 days where you had to do specific things where, for example, the first hour of your day, not like having a morning routine and not looking at your phone and reading. And that really helped me to structure and help some, I'll say some <laughs> with my screen time so that I, I leave my mobile device outside of the bedroom, like not even having it in the room because that's temptation of rolling over in the <laughs> middle of the night and looking looking at, you know, look, checking notifications or checking things like that. So that's been tremendously helpful. Also within that was working out an hour a day. So again, making sure that I'm getting outside and I'm moving or if I am working out, I'm typically listening to something rather than looking at the screen. And it can be a challenge because so much of what we do is on the screen. But as has been shared is the the taking breaks and and um, and getting getting outside and doing something different. So I've been doing more cooking now as well. So that like adding different elements into my day outside of the screen has been tremendously helpful. Next question. 
Gavin Roberts in Chester, or maybe Pennsylvania. Guys, does anyone know of a way to trigger banner and skyscraper adverts on a live stream for advertisers that auto-rotate every six to seven minutes? Would this need to be done via a macro in vMix, or is there a simpler way? Jeffrey? Um, I think in vMix, yes. What I would have, what I normally do is I use my Stream Deck and Companion. Both of them have the ability uh, to uh, to set up triggers to your vMix, uh, whether it be on the machine or the remote. The problem that you run into there's there's two big problems, and one is sync. Uh, so you you start talking about something, and all of a sudden a banner shows up, and it's in the wrong place that the or it's in the right place at the wrong time, and then all of a sudden it uh, becomes a problem. And then you're fighting that, and then that just puts your brain into a different different realm. And then the other thing is I don't like to do, I, I, I put a lot of work using my vMix, but you know, there's, there's a limit and you don't want to overstress the computer because you're doing a hundred different things at once. And that's why usually, like for instance, my stream deck is usually on a different computer and it's remoting into the uh, vMix instance. So a lot of things can be done on a secondary computer and work from there. Uh, and I've also gotten away from doing a lot of automation, and I'm I've been playing with the uh, a couple of weeks ago we talked about it, it was a uh, app called OnTime. Uh, it's a stage timer, and I have that on another computer, and then I can plan out what happens when, and then I can make the triggers from there. I can do a little bit of automation, but once again, if if anything happens, even if the, the banners stop working halfway through, you've put on a new stress because you're not expecting this to happen. And then all of a sudden it happens, and that can just completely derail a show. Next question. Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York asks, is there a relay system that allows a stage manager to signal to the audio engineer for streaming not for in-stage view exactly what mic is going to be used before the talent uses it? A web interface controller, perhaps, or an iPad, iPad interface? Jason? Sure. There, there are a number of tally systems that can do this, and you can just get creative with their placement. The one that comes to mind for me is angryaudio.com. Uh, take a look at the studio signal light. It's a, a stack of different colors that you know could be placed in some way out of view and uh, could be used for exactly this. And Alex? Most of the time. Uh, there's not a studio, the, the stage manager is not doing this. It's an A2. <laughs> so there's usually someone working with the A1. So in most events, we have, if we're ma managing mics, we have an A1 and we have an A2. Uh, the stage manager is worried, worried about moving people around, uh, making sure that things are, people are cued. Um, the A2 is the person who is on comms with, with the um, uh, A1 telling them what's happening next. And usually they've put a name on it. They've put an order on it. If they know who's coming out, there's a, and they're saying, I'm on mic one or I'm handing them mic two or confirming that it's mic eight, whatever that is. And so if you're managing mics on a stage, you should have an A2. Uh, it's too much to ask for the a, the stage manager to try to manage all of those things. What you end up with is kind of a uh, an, an unfocused um, stage manager, which doesn't usually produce a great show. Next question. Next one comes to us from Noah Sargent in Fullerton, California, on the panel today. Do you have experience with line arrays? I've seen a new speaker, the Persona CDL12P, pop up in my research and was cur curious as to whether it's any good. Alexander? 
Yeah, this is really interesting. I, I mean, I have mixed on line arrays and I actually just did an install with a line array system. I, I didn't know the PreSonus actually made speakers. So it's a pretty interesting design. Uh, they claim uh, fully symmetrical design. It's got 12 two-inch drivers right down the middle with a 12-inch woofer directly behind it so that you should get that symmetrical dispersion, which is really, really important. It's got Dante built in, which is really neat, and it looks like full speaker management DSP, so you get compression limiting. It's got parametric EQ, so you can EQ your monitors. Looks like a really great system. Is it any good? I don't know. It specs well. It looks good, so uh, it'd be something I would have to try. Next question. Alexander Knight, Vancouver, British Columbia. Tascam has announced a new Dante-enabled digital stage box with 32-bit analog to digital converters and a sample rate uh, and sample rates up to 96 kilohertz. Looks like a well-specced product. It should work with any Dante-enabled mixer. And uh, he's got a link there. Jeffrey. Yeah, it looks like a really great box. Uh, they said they created this to because they have their Tascam SonicView 20, uh, the 24 XP which is a $7,000 mixer. And uh, it is uh, it, it should connect up to that. It will connect up to computers or anything like that. So uh, you can buy it on its own. It's not out yet, but I'm expecting to see it. I will be at NAMM uh, in a couple of weeks. So I, I am going to be stopping by Tascam and see what uh, other great little features that they're, they're adding. And I'll definitely, uh, we'll, we'll do a video on that and get that out to you guys. And Alex. Yeah, it looks like a great box. Um, it, it'll be interesting to, you know, once people get to actually test it and work with it, but uh, it's great when it's av available on Dante and not some kind of proprietary uh, system to make that actually work. Uh, it, the price point seems to be about down the middle uh, where a lot of those boxes are landing. Next question. Todd Rains in Allen, Texas. Myself and a group of other wood turners had a two-night Zoom event with a charity auction. It worked reasonably well using H2R graphics and socialstream.ninja as a very low-cost solution. Are there any other low-cost charity auction solutions for use in Zoom? Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I don't think that there, I haven't seen any other than than, than the ones that you're that you're listing there um, that have been available. But I think that there are some other. It, it, the question is, is where do you need that to occur? Do you want all of the auctioning to occur in Zoom? I think that really limits what you can do. I think a lot of people would open up Zoom and you could send them to a website at the same time and let them do it. Once you get onto a website, there are many options to make that ab absolutely work. So if you're happy with what you did, then keep it there. If you are, if you feel like you could have done a little bit more, think about using a web. Uh, sidecar to make that actually work. Next question. Gavin Robertson Chester says, guys, does anyone know of a way to trigger banner and skyscraper adverts on a live stream for advertisers that auto-rotate every six to seven minutes? Would this need to be done via a macro in vMix or is there a simpler way? Seems pretty similar to something we hit earlier. Jason? You answered that one. Yeah. Um, I, my way wouldn't be I guess simpler. I would use MIDI and uh, and a timer, and that would basically be it. It can just be programmed to to wait and then do it again and randomize it and then do it again. Next question. Douglas Carmichael again. Sonar Works Sound ID Reference seems to be a powerful tool for calibrating frequency response. Can it also remove the in your head feel of headphones without a virtual room simulation plugin like Waves NX? And he notes he uses NX all the time. Alex? Yeah, I, I guess what I would say is that a lot of these tools are useful to get to, you know, as a crutch to kind of get through something to figure things out. But 
The reality is, is the only way for you to know how it's going to sound in a room is to listen to it in a room. Um, you know, and, and there's just so many physics, so many, so many, so much physics. And I, I have to admit that I've had to work on projects where I'm working in very large spaces, small spaces, headphones. And it's very hard to really get a sense, both from a calculation perspective, as well as a just an experiential perspective of what it sounds like in that room without the the, the discrete speakers. So, if I was on a train try, or I was at a hotel room and I'm just trying to get the, the mix close, then I may use some kind of a calib of, of simulation software. Um, but but outside of that, what I really think you need to do is is you know that gets you close, but you you just always have to know you're going to need to finish it in the in the area that you're going in the listening space that you're planning to publish it, you need to finish it there. Uh, whether that's a near field, that's a small room or a room, say 15 by 15, a large, you know, a, a theater space or a headphone space. You got to finish it in those and preferably listen to all of them to know that it's actually working. Next question. Noah Sargent, Fullerton, California. Who's going to NAB and how are the office hours coverage plans going? Yes, looking forward to this, Alex. Yeah, so uh, the live view should show up today, the first one. Um, we think that we may have as many as three live views uh, for, for NAB. So uh, I think we have we'll, we have a meeting later today uh, talking about it. I believe that we have um, nearly 50 people working on the project with 15, I think, on the, on the ground. Uh, we plan to have a couple hours. So there's a couple different things that we're doing. One is that we are going to have some live typical the same stuff we've done in the past where there's some live streaming there's a panel on the other side uh we're we're discussing things with them we're showing them things and we may be jumping from because we have we potentially have m multiple live views um if we have all of that put together uh, and we'll know by the next week by next monday <laughs> that how many live views we have because it'll all hopefully all be in house at that point um but the uh what we'll be doing is jumping from um, basically from Central Hall to North Hall to West Hall, you know, throughout a live stream, which would be kind of cool. Um, the other uh, thing that we're going to be doing is turning some of these live views on. These are LU800s. They're capable of 4K60 HDR, you know, streams and 5.1. So we're going to turn them on at other times and cover the event uh, with, in a, we're not going to try to do that in our panel view, but we are going to do that as a test of the whole system. So you'll see us turning those on and, and streaming out uh, from these from these locations, which should be pretty exciting as well. Um, and so, but that'll be a different kind of coverage. Um, and then we're also, a, a bunch of us are going to be covering some things. And if you're interested in that, if you have history of covering stuff or you want to look at those things, talk to us. But we're going to be shooting a lot of shorts, shooting a lot of VOD. We've got people ready to edit some of those on the on the on the other side. We're not going to put the VOD into the live streams. The live streams are going to be live. The VOD is going to be VOD, um, and and those are going to go up into our our channel. Um, so we're going to hit it in a couple different ways. And then finally, there's going to be a room opened uh, while while the expo hall's going on. Uh, there's going to be a room open where people can just. Folks on our team uh, that are there can jump, anybody at NAB that's in our group can jump into the after hours, raise their hand and show people something they think is cool uh, inside of after hours in a, in a specific room. So uh, I think that it will be probably, it's potentially, if, if it works out remotely well, will be probably the most aggressive coverage of any <laughs> any conference in our space ever. Um, and so, and, and it's all built on the stuff we've learned from the past, you know, from every everything that everybody's done and, you know, over the last little bit. We, we are 
trying to hit it from a bunch of different directions. We don't expect it all to work, um, but we, we are planning to experiment. We have so many people available. We want to experiment with all the bits and pieces, the, and then we're going to calm down and look at some of the, there's a couple other conferences coming uh, like Cinegear, like other, and in, in possibly some other ones that are nearer to us. Uh, and we may cover those and experiment with a couple other things, but I think we're starting to figure out how to really go crazy when it comes to coverage of a, of a conference and make it, and really it's a service to our members and to the rest of the world. These conferences are only serving 0.00001% of the world and we're trying to crack them open a little bit so that everybody else gets to see a little bit as well. Is this one of the the largest, like you said 50, and I don't recall what um, what some of the numbers have been in the past, but this sounds like it's probably really the largest large... one so far. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, and, and, uh, and I think that it'll keep getting bigger. <laughs> you know, like I think that it's, you know, I don't think it's going to get smaller. I think not all of them will be this big, but I think that um, they'll keep on expanding because, you know, I think that w- what we are really focused on, you'll notice that it's probably not as, uh, not as shiny as some of the ones we've done in the past. We are focused on making them more sustainable so that they're not a huge lift. They are still a lift. There's a lot of planning. We're meeting every week where there's a lot of people working on organization and process, but it's probably not quite as, heavy a lift from a production perspective as the other ones because we're ramping up to be able to be able to do one of these every month. So every four to four to eight weeks, we want to be able to do cover a different event. And so we don't want to, we don't want to turn any of them into it. You know, we want to use the existing infrastructure as much as we can. Right. Of course, the HDR stuff is allowing us to stretch just a little bit. So we're going from there. And if I could ask one more, because this yeah. is so, I find this all so fascinating. So you might have asked, answered this before, but the intentionality of like, you've got the social element, you've got the live element, you've got the video on demand, but then even the after hours and the community, was that all intentional or did someone say, hey, we should, you know, make sure that the, we're... The way we work, I would love to say that it was intentional and that we sat down and had a meeting and drew out a graph of how do we serve it. But what happened really was people came up with ideas like, what, what could we open up a window in after hours. So, I, you know, we really like to have something more informal that's sitting in after hours. And we realized that, um, you know, we, we should, shorts are a really good snackable way to just kind of, here's a bunch of little booths that are not necessarily something we want to spend 10 minutes on, but but they're something that you might want to see. And so let's, let's do some of those, but we have people that can edit. So let's do some 16 by nine and maybe even a couple of the shorts uh, with, you know, with more work to make them look a little shinier and see what people do with them. Like, do people like that? Do people not like that? Do, should, you know, should, is, as we balance it, do we balance quantity over, you know, quality? Do we, you know, there's all these things that we want to experiment with. So um, some of it's stuff that we've known in the past. Some of it has been based on, you know, we, uh, people have said, hey, I can provide this, I can provide that. So some of this is also coming from, you know, who is coming, what they're bringing and what's available. And, and again, we've had some uh, great support from, you know, and all these things take time to build up because you have to start, start building a track record. So last week, last year was people making a great example of what's there. You know, Electrosonic is helping us with the mic- microphones, Live is helping us with the, um, with the live views. Um, you know, we, we have offers for other things that we're, we're looking at as well. So, so there's been a lot of, um, you know, support from the industry as we kind of keep on building up. And, and if we do a great job or even do a good job, I think. I mean, you know, NAB was our first try last year mm-hmm. and I and I was, you know, I got a couple pings like this is some of the best footage uh, coverage I'm seeing this year about NAB. So I think that we can turn that up a couple notches and um, and I think that we can, you know, slowly build this over the next over the next year, so two years of development into probably some of the best coverage of of these kinds of events in the world. 
Um, and that I think pr provides a huge use to the rest of the industry. I think it provides a huge use to the rest of our members. So, so we're going to keep on and it's a lot of fun. Like the goal is we are really working on having fun. Right? We're going to rent a house. So a couple of people are going to hang out at the it's going to be a flop house. Um, and, uh, and then we're going to have some get togethers. I think we're planning a big dinner. And so it's, it's going to be a good time. So awesome. So awesome. And producers, we have a few more space for a few more questions. So feel free to submit them. And John, you wanted to add something. No, I just wanted to hear everything he was going to miss. Is that, was that the deal? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty much. Well, pretty much. I mean, for me, no, it, yeah, it's we a hope, bit of FOMO for sure. Sorry, go ahead, Alex. <laughs> if you have time, try to jump in the panel because we're there to, you know, because we'll be talking, we'll be conversing with you uh, or whoever's on the panel there. But that, what we're hoping to do, and I don't think it'll happen on this one, but what we're really hoping to do is is get to a point where you don't feel as much FOMO, that you feel like you're you're learning, you know, that we're providing you what, you know, a lot of the energy as well as the information uh, that you might get out of NAB. It's not going to be the same as being there, um, but but we think that there's a lot of people, you know, not, again, 99.9999999% of the world that doesn't have the time, money, passports, visas, all the things that are required to go to these conferences. And so we're trying to make them more accessible to everyone. And Noah? Yeah, no, I was going to say too. So, I, I mean, I was heavily involved in the beginning um, of, you know, when we we're pioneering this and trying to figure out how this was going to work. So it's really fun to see the iterations continue, you know, with the other shows and what we're doing now. And um, the FOMO from the content side, but also the FOMO on the production side of like, you know, um, wanting to be involved, but knowing at the same time, like there's other projects and other things going on in my life too. But it's still exciting to check in and see how, how the progress is going. Next question. Kenny Hampton, Greenville, Illinois. Regarding live digital events, would you use a motorized camera slider, maybe on automatic, to provide visual interest? Courtney? Depends on the event. If it's a, um, a musical event with a live band or something on stage, yes, you might. I would never put it on uh, automatic because it, you need to have it motivated on automatic. It starts to look like a security camera panning back and forth or sliding back and forth. Uh, it needs to be manned, and the move needs to be to go somewhere, you know, to start on one person, come around, reveal somebody else, maybe throw focus to that other person. And automated, you're not going to be able to automate that to any degree of success. If it's a panel or something where people are just standing and talking or sitting and talking on the stage, I would stay away from a slider. People like to think that uh, it adds visual interest, but I think it just disorients the audience. And on a live stream, it's going to reduce your bandwidth because it's going to require a lot more compression because the background's constantly moving and the foreground's moving. So it's just annoying. I'm annoyed by it. So it may may not be everybody's point of view, but if, if your people are stationary or it's a play, a dramatic situation, I would uh, either have it manned to do your moves uh, and do them with purpose or, uh, or not use them at all. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah. For, uh, I think that again, I, when we talk about digital events, I don't think I would use them if it's just, if there's nobody out in the audience, if we're just doing pure people talking to the rest of the world, uh, for audience shots, uh, we've used them a lot. <laughs> and sometimes they're manned, sometimes they're motorized. Uh, usually we put them at, past the first section of people. We put the stage in, in focus and, um, oftentimes we do set them on an auto back and forth. 
And what we're getting is, uh, you know, we just get this movement of the stage with usually heads that are kind of out of focus in the foreground uh, a little bit. And it gives, you know, the, the concept is, is that it gives you the sense that you're like in the audience. I don't know, in the audience sliding on, on, on a roller chair. Uh, anyway, but um, but they're very popular with clients and we've definitely had them specifically requested. Um, and, they, you know, they I think that they look fine for that kind of show. Um, I, I kind of lean on with lean in with Courtney in the sense that I prefer things to be more focused uh, in general, not just with this. But once we're in the audience, uh, it is one of the kind of the value things, you know, production value things that we're asked to bring in along with, you know, jibs and dollies and all kinds of other stuff. And Bill? I agree with all that 100 percent. The 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 one thing that I found that they can be useful for is if you have a fixed uh, shot and you've got something like a band on stage. I've had been in the situation a lot where camera three that is supposed to be shooting the drummer or whatever is blocked temporarily by the lead singer who's planted himself in a weird place. And I just would say to myself, if I could just move a foot to the right, I could clear that shot and make it useful again. So if you have control over a slider or something like that, to be able to change a shot. Now, that's different than using it for the aesthetics of I want to change my angle of view as I'm going there. The other thing, though, that bothers me always, if you're in any kind of a live circumstance, is that it takes two tripods and you have to balance it and get it on a track. If you're not in a fixed setting and you're bringing it in, it is a good little bit of rigging to get it balanced correctly, and it adds to the equipment load. Sometimes that's important. Sometimes it's not. Next question. Stefan Wurzberg, uh, Stefan out of Wurzberg, Germany, says, Today I first realized noise on a still photograph on a website. The noise seems to move when I look at the picture. What causes this? And he's got a link there. Jeffrey? So I've been going down the fun rabbit hole on this one. I'm going to show you the page really quick. See, you should be able to see the actual movement of here. Maybe not, but uh, it, what it is doing, it's like a little snow effect that's happening there. This is the original photo that's coming from there and as you can see it's pretty clear as day so i've been trying to figure out how they're doing it but it looks like it's an effect that they've overlaid on the photo because if you look at the page none of the other images just that title image does that so and of course you go to the next page the same thing happens so this is a this is an effect and this is a squarespace site so you can probably check in with uh, squarespace and see what types of effects that they offer Bill? I'm not saying it is this because I didn't have time to look at it, but we'd also see raster mapping anomalies where if you take a photograph at one resolution and map it to whatever the raster is that's coming out of that, sometimes those individual pixels, dark and light, fall between adjacent pixels and the software can, particularly in interlaced, um, kind of cause a vibration kind of thing that causes small detail to move around. It's one of the things I look for when I'm judging whether something is good to put on the web or not. And Noah? I'm wondering if you could check the um, log on the website to see if, if it's an actual image or if it's a video because it could be a moving picture that has that um, effect built into it. But I think Jeffrey Powers is on onto it too with maybe an overlay uh, within Squarespace. It is an image, by the way. Next question. Walt Plummer in Lewis, Delaware says, following tornadoes in my area over the weekend, I'm exploring use of Zoom to get announcers on the air from home. Can Zoom reoccurring meetings use co-hosts to start the meeting? Alex? Yes, you can. 
<laughs> so the answer is yes. Uh, you can set a you can set a recurring meeting and have and have co-hosts, or you can set them as the I, I don't know if it's co-host, but you set them as the ability to be another meeting owner, and that's you should see that at the bottom of your meeting settings, and that will allow other people to uh, launch your meeting for you. Next question. Ken English in Buffalo, Buffalo, New York says, does anyone have thoughts or, and or suggestions on how to set up an overhead shot, for example, to assemble electronics? Would you use two cameras, zoom and a wide or one? Noah? Well, if you got the equipment, you might as well go for a wide, a close-up of the gear, a close-up of your face, you know, get all those shots in there. The more the merrier, the more you do multi-cam stuff. So it, it would also be helpful to have some sort of multi-view. If you have an ATEM ISO, that would be perfect. You feed all those into your... Um, ATEM, and then you can see the multi-view. But as far as the rigging goes, uh, a C-stand with a uh, boom arm, like a 40-inch, would be super helpful. And then some sort of um, grip with a cord 20 for each camera. But I, I would not suggest having the camera connected directly to your desk unless that desk is super heavy-duty and you know it's not going to move because even those little micro-jitters will show up on camera um, as your desk shakes. Alexander. Post a link to this in the chat, but Elgato makes a really cool multi-mount. I think it's called the Flex Arm, which uh, which is great because you can have it completely reach overhead like this. Basically, have your camera there. Uh, this is where cameras with auto good autofocus uh, really help out because uh, I've seen podcasts where people do stuff on when they're demonstrating a product and they have to reach for the camera lens and they're adjusting focus and adjusting the focal length in real time you might not want to have to do that so if you can get something with good autofocus like a sony camera that really helps go ahead john you know as a frame of reference there's two great channels on youtube they're electronics repair but they both use microscopes that that zoom into the electronics boards uh, one is Lewis Rossman, and the other one is Northridge Fix. And Alex? Yeah, one thing to think about also is what you're seeing so that you don't get disoriented. So if you're really trying to show something, one of the things that you'll deal with is that you're you're trying to um, you're trying to look at something and let's see if I can get to this here. I just hit the wrong button. Um, you're you you want to monitor. Now I'm going to show you something that you probably don't don't need to do. Um, but but I think that it is uh, gives you a sense of the the angle of, of 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 what you're trying to do here. Let me pull this up here real quick. And if you the, the main thing that we did here, and this is quite some time ago, um, if you uh, oops, sorry, I'm discombobulated here. So so here you go. So so this is an overhead shot, and what we were doing is how to how to get set up. You know how to do a. This was a science experiment for. for K through 12, uh, many years ago. And so what you're seeing is, is that what we did is we had the overhead shot here, but we made sure that there was a monitor that was in front of our subject. And the reason we did that, of course, is so that, so that the, the subject got a sense of their own hands. And what they did is they got used to actually, um, uh, you know, looking at the monitor instead of looking down. So they're able to look at the monitor. And what that does is if you put another camera over top of that, they're looking up the whole time. <laughs> and so when you cut to them, they're still looking up and they're looking at a monitor there. In fact, you can put it on a teleprompter. We didn't do it here. But it lets them have the same orientation with their hands um, to make that actually work. Now, I will say that a jib works exceptionally well for this. But a lot of times what we've done is hung PTZs over people's shoulders and even taken that camera and put it right over their shoulder. So you really get kind of a, a POV of their hands going down and working on something. Um, and we found that to be a really effective way to do um, a lot of the training um, that we've done in the past. And Jeffrey. 
So, and this is the best part about how I have this studio set up is I can actually show you my actual studio. Let me show you this. So this is my, the main uh, frontal uh, view of my studio. I then have, this is the over the shoulder view. So if, you, if we go back to this, you'll see a PTZ camera right above that TV monitor. That's the shot that it's going. And then I have this overhead view, uh, which is a straight down view from the ceiling. Uh, everything, like I said, is PTZ, so I can sit there and I can switch it around. That's the camera that is doing the overhead view. If you notice, I have a, uh, I have a fabric light right above it, which I can control uh, the brightness so I can uh, give it a, a great shot or a little shot. I find that by doing these multi-views with the PTZ camera, you're, you're going you're gonna to be doing something like unboxing and you'll like, for instance, I did a cooler uh, about a week ago, and I wanted to show on the side, but the cooler was so big, that overhead shot, it was just covering the whole overhead shot. So instead of trying to tip and tilt the uh, cooler, I just used the other shot, the uh, over-the-shoulder shot to get to where I wanted to show. Same thing on the front there. I could actually zoom in on that uh, through, the, uh, through the main shot so you could see the table right there. And so now I have three different shots of the exact same area. So if you need to see anything, uh, you have the best view possible. Next question. Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois says, for those who, were, who wear eyeglasses while on camera, is there a preferred glare coating to diminish reflections? I've found that even the expensive coatings create blue marks of reflection when on camera. Alex? Angle of incidence equals angle of reflection. <laughs> so you just really have to, the most effective way to handle your reflections on your on glasses is to pay attention to what angle the camera is. And then what is, and sometimes what you can do is is take a small light and you can move it up and down until you see where that is, where, what is it, what is it actually reflecting off of? Um, and, uh, and then figure that out. But the camera going towards the, towards the, the is bouncing off the your lenses and going to somewhere don't put a light there i mean and i and i i know that that sounds there's a lot of coatings there's a lot of things that you can try to filter out we've tried um you know we've, we've tried polarizing filters but it makes the skin look weird um so we've done a lot of different things that 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 can do it um but um the best way to do it is just not to put the light where it's going to reflect it's actually not a very large space to to put it in that you can that you have to skip over courtney yeah, what Alex said. Don't use a ring light surrounding your lens because you'll never get that out. You'll look like a raccoon. Um, you can use polarizing filters. Here's one here. Uh, but as Alex said, it also eliminates reflections off your skin. So you tend to look under the first layer of skin and your skin looks a little bit uh, more saturated uh, look. And so you rotate this until the reflection gets out. But the easiest way is put your uh, lights that are above the camera uh, at a 45 degree angle up above the uh, the horizontal line from your eyeballs to the camera and it should stay out of the reflection in your glasses. The other thing you can do is tilt your glasses down some. Well, that changes the angle of reflection so that if you tilt them down, if you're seeing reflections, just tilt them down slightly. Raise the, uh, the earpieces up a little bit over the back of your ears and uh, that may eliminate some of the reflection. And Bill. 
To Courtley's last point, I, I have many times had a problem with glasses reflections and just taken a tiny bit of gaff cape and wrapped it around those stems right where they hit on the top of the ears. And sometimes just raising an eighth of an inch is plenty to take care of the problem. So don't look for complicated solutions when sometimes really easy ones show up. Next question. Next question comes from Tlaloc Lopez Waterman in Charlotte, North Carolina. What are broadcasters today typically using to bring in remotes from places like Ukraine, LiveView, Zoom, Satellite? Go ahead, Alex. I think it's a little bit of both. <laughs> or a little bit of all of them. Uh, I, I don't think that there's a lot of live views that are being used there just because of the cellular coverage isn't probably uh, sufficient there. Uh, Zoom is being used with Starlink. Uh, so Starlink has been extremely important inside of Ukraine as far as transmission of, of video out of Ukraine. And, and it's been Starlink in a mixture of, a, of some pretty complex AWS routing uh, to make most of those uh, transmissions work. And then, of course, for the broadcast, and that's, and that's for the government of Ukraine as well as the, uh, you know, a lot of things from the field. Uh, and then for broadcasters, typically it's going to be satellite. So um, until we get to a point where people start shooting satellites down, uh, they are a really easy way to get a video signal up and down uh, almost anywhere in the world. And so, so this would, you know, typically a satellite truck, or you can even have a small satellite fly pack. Um, so you can put those in, especially when it's not, if it's not raining or other things, there's what we call KA and KU truck, um, KA and KU packs. The KU packs are typically a couple meters uh, wide, they kind of open up and the KA packs are much smaller. You can get a dish that's as, as, as small as two or three feet. Um, but those those are going to um, be more susceptible to um, clouds and, and fog. And so those are things that they kind of consider there. And Noah? Alex just definitely has a more complete answer, but I, I will say I did do a project about a year and a half, I know about a year ago uh, with a corporate client and they had an office in the Ukraine. And so they had a guest who joined us. Um, we were able to use the internet for the building, you know, the is existing infrastructure. Um, but as soon as we finished streaming, it basically cut out. But I, I just remember, and I wanted to tell that story because it was a very memorable moment of like being in the middle of, you know, the chaos and everything going on and still being able to have a two-way conversation from around the world uh, between the CEO and, you know, their team in the Ukraine. So it was just an uh, amazing thing what, what technology can do to help connect us. Wonderful. Thank you so much, producers, for your questions. And now as we make this transition into our second hour, we have with us today product specialist Kevin O'Connell from Descript. Kevin, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Hello, Liberty. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me. Okay, so we are so geeked. The questions have already piled up from our community. Uh, with regards to Descript, this is now like an all-in-one tool. You can create captions, transcriptions. There's AI elements to it. Like it is all almost all things editing. Can you lay the groundwork for us of the, the beginning stages of Descript where you are now? And I know that you also have a tutorial uh, or a demo for our, our team. So I just want to let you have at it so we can have as much time with you as possible. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, D Descript is an audio and video editor. It is transcription text-based. So you're importing media, getting text transcriptions, and editing the text to edit the underlying audio and video. As you said, Liberty, there's many AI tools and features built in. Uh, our methodology and ideology around implementing those is the power of AI, but having it live a little bit beneath the surface so you are not... Uh, 
maybe distracted by the the aspect of AI working with you and for you. Uh, it's really in the, in the fabric of of the tool, and it makes editing, collaborating, um, just producing your content really seamless and powerful. Yeah. And there are so many different ways that just not only watching your tutor- tutorials, but during office hours, many of uh, us are talking about how we're using Descript for social media and how we're using it for video on demand and just doing creating captions. Um, what's the demo if you want to get started there and just walking our community through for those who are watching who may have not used it yet? Sure, sure. First, I'll, I'll kind of show the bare bones power of Descript, bringing in some media, uh, getting that text transcription, and being able to edit the, the text to edit the underlying audio or video. And then we can kind of break out from there. There's so many ways to use Descript, whether you're a podcast team around the world, or a news station, or an indie creator making TikTok videos, uh, whatever it might be working in the tool is is pretty pretty seamless and, and easy. Um, so let me just do that in, in kind of three quick steps. Awesome. Create a new project. And... Yeah, that and and the beauty of it too is there's there's some YouTubers that I've watched been watching some of how they've I didn't even recognize because we use it mainly just for the editing, the social aspect, but even the screen recording features mm-hmm. like while you're in the midst of it. So looking forward to the setup here. Cool. Yeah, there's kind of three ways to start. It's either importing and transcribing media, recording your screen, mic, camera, or any combination of those, including computer audio, or starting to write. So if you're working in something more scripted or a narrative type show, um, starting to write and script out and collaborate and then bringing in tape uh, is a a pretty common workflow too. So I'm going to pull in two files from an interview here between Jay and JP. And you simply drag and drop your files in. You'll add some nice speaker labels so they're labeled out for you when the transcript pops up. So I'll label J for J and JP for him. And this will transcribe for us. And you'll see this start to populate as we go. But like many DAWs and NLEs, we have a timeline here, non-destructive editing the timeline for more precision editing. Under the hood, we have the ability to edit in a multi-track fashion. So you can still see individual tracks laid out that we just dropped in. But we simplified editing to give us a linear timeline and script. So it's all editing in parallel. So here's here's what Descript looks like and sounds like. Descript. Jay, welcome to the show. Jay. Hey, JP. JP, can we ask you to uh, repeat that? It looks like there was a countdown for the recording. So we missed... Okay, so the, the, the classic premature starting to record before ready or starting to talk before a recording is initiated. Seeing the, the script here, you can find the actual start of the interview, which is right here. You're listening to AI in Action. You're listening to AI in Action. I'm your host, JP Valentine. And simply editing, so deleting the text... We'll remove that section of the audio. And now our interview starts here. You're listening to AI in Action. I'm your host, JP Valentine. 
So and I don't want it to be the, lost on our yeah. on our community that like it was the text that is driving the edit more so than us actually looking at the timeline and cutting from there. Exactly. Yeah. I. It depends on what I'm working on, but typical podcast production, I'm doing 75, 80% of my editing using the text. So cutting, copying, pasting to rearrange sections. Uh, deleting stuff I don't want or using our strike through ignore feature to do the same thing. Uh, that's really powerful because you can strike stuff out, see the edits that you've made and bring them back. That's our pleasure. Jay, let's start with yourself. You can bring back edits, see what you've made. Uh, you can remove filler words really quickly, a couple clicks, the same process. And you can see those edits that you've made in the script as well. So every time there's a filler word, Absolutely. I'm happy to. It's you can decide to bring those back if you want to be a little bit more natural. It's really very intuitive, super easy to use for anybody. Yeah, that's awesome. I see Sky in the comments saying, wow. <laughs> so that if there are people on your team that may not necessarily have that that back, that editing background, they are still able to contribute to a project because I th I think in some of the descript language it's like hey if you're familiar with a, a doc like a Google doc you know how to edit that you can mm -hmm. edit in descript mm -hmm. and that's what we're seeing with a lot of teams is teams like over at HBO or NBC Vice wherever they're able to bring on producers that don't have an audio or video background to be part of the production process and to use their skills and experience to get media and projects that they would never have had the opportunity to work on otherwise, um, and still have the power of exporting all this to Premiere or to Pro Tools, Audition, and continuing your workflow in any of those programs non-destructively as well. So you'll export all of your edits and all of your raw media and populate those timelines and be able to continue on for the engineers and post-production producers out there. And where, where would someone go from here? So they, they're editing this component. What's the next phase? Yeah, a lot of times collaboration early on is a big part of it. So I have my drive here, just like a Dropbox or Google Drive set up with a bunch of members. And as I'm working, uh, maybe I'm the associate producer. I'm just going through and doing a rough cut, rough edit. I might be dropping in comments, just like in a doc and tagging some folks on my team and maybe Jack's our fact checker. So I'll be fact checking sections, dropping those comments there. I might have a freelancer that I'm working with only on this specific episode. I might go and add them through an email invite to either edit or comment only, but we'll go through collaborate, work together, uh, get this sounding in a, a pretty decent state, basically all of the media and all of the content where we want it to be. Um, making sure our edits are going to be sound when we get out to, in this case, I'll probably be sending this out to Pro Tools. And from there, we'll do, we would do a non-destructive export of our timeline. And we'll include all of our files and send this out and do a, a session data import into Pro Tools and then do all of our sound design, mixing, mastering from there. Awesome. And now this can also be used in collaboration with other tools that people may use. It's not necessarily something that's going to replace 
those that have uh, with legacy <laughs> legacy uh, platforms. But h- how does that workflow? Um, how do how are you seeing people using that workflow? Yeah. Well, first we're we're seeing folks use Descript end to end for a lot of media, so they'll do all of their editing, mixing, sound design in Descript drop out an audio or video file and they're either publishing that to one of our integrated partners here to go straight to these platforms or just exporting a file. But for teams that are yeah using legacy software or just like myself, I I prefer mixing, mastering Pro Tools. Um, we'll get everybody together. This is where we stay as long as we possibly can and get a content lock. So we'll do a lot of research. We'll maybe be, be recording straight in if we're going to bring in some archival footage or archival audio using our built-in recorder. You can record computer sound. Um, and we'll just get everything assembled here. We'll start to write. Also, we can go into write mode and just start scripting right here like a doc. Same thing. Uh, get everything in place. Sometimes our hosts will come in and do some scratch recording. Or we'll have this read back with an AI voice, which we'll show you in a little bit, um, which are available for free in Descript. Or you can also create your own synthetic version of your voice. And then we'll get everything really just in a solid place before we're we're ready to export out. So basically everything is where we want it to be. It's probably like a 90% finish uh, for the edit. And then we'll go out to Pro Tools Audition, Premiere, wherever we're going. Awesome. And I know that we have some of the panelists have some questions. So uh, we'll go to Courtney, get maybe get a couple of questions, because I do want to make sure we have time for uh, our producers questions. There are a lot of them. Courtney? Yeah, one question I had in in the uh, example you just showed with Jay and JP, Mm -hmm. uh, you brought in two separate WAV files. If that was a double ender, in other words, each was recording on their own in their different locations, and they sent you the WAV file, their locally recorded WAV files, how do you synchronize those two so that they both start at the same time? Is it you use time code? Do you have to line them up and start them at the same time? That's, How is that yeah, handled? Great, great question. That is most of the pro podcast studios that we're working with are doing that work. Um, for folks that don't know, it's in the industry called a tape sync, where you're recording two ends of an interview in two different locations with some kind of call in between. Typically these days, it's a Zoom call or a phone call. Uh, and we kind of reverse engineer that process if you need to do some syncing. So what we do instead of dragging and dropping those two already synced files into an empty doc, we create what's called a sequence, which is that multi-track view I showed at the beginning. And we'll just bring those files in one at a time. So, so let's say these two are not synced. You can drag them and drop them individually, transcribe, Add speaker labels the same way. Wow. And then you would also bring in the recording of that call, sync these two files to the recording of that call. So they're the same start and end point, same length, you know, when one person's speaking, the other person's not kind of thing. Uh, And then delete the track that has that Zoom call or whatever call on it. And then create a doc. We call them compositions. We'll create a doc from this multi-track sequence, so this pairing, and then we'll have a, the exact same thing that we saw before, a nice laid out transcription and timeline, just like this. So these can all be be synced and moved around so you can get them 
how you need them to be. Say they're synced. Yeah, and, and it's great where you see the actual words below the uh, waveforms. That's really yes. handy. Yeah, so so helpful here, both in the sequence view and also in the timeline. So when we're editing the actual conversation, the interview itself, we have all these word tabs in the timeline. So you can follow along as you're going if you're someone who prefers you know, editing with waveform view. This can be edited. You can adjust your pacing and timing here in the timeline. So pulling to the left will obviously remove some space and pulling to the right will give us AI generated room tone so that when we get out to Pro Tools in this case, we would have a piece of room tone for each track. We're analyzing their mic signal, their background noise, um, and it's really accurate and, and, and helpful when we're getting out there. Bill? You've been mentioning the integration with Adobe products. How does it work with other things like Final Cut and Resolve? Yeah, great question. We don't have uh, integration with Resolve, an export integration with Resolve at the moment, but you can non-destructively export to Pro Tools and Logic Audition, Reaper, uh, Final Cut, and Premiere. So the most common workflow for this is just using Descript as a tape wrangler and editor uh, for audio and video, getting all of your edits in place using the power of transcript-based editing. And then exporting out there and doing all of your uh, sound design, effects, animation, color correction, anything like that. Wow, that's awesome. And did you want to go through one more? Like, I know that, so you've just shown us sequences and like scenes are something that have been like game changing for a lot of people and just being able to move elements around. If you want to um, show us that and then we'll get into our, our questions. Yeah, let's do it. I'll do the same quick process. Uh, we'll bring in a video file so we can show some scenes. Scenes are, I'll show, it'll, it'll make sense in a second, but it is, scenes are our way of uh, sectioning up and reorganizing a video to change layout or change visuals or anything like that. So here's just, just a single video file. Same works for video as audio as if you're doing an interview and you're bringing in two separate video files, uh, we can go through that same process. In this case, it's just a single MP4 audio attached single file. They're from our friends at Chili Piper, if anybody knows that that team. So what else is going on? This will be done in a sec. Scenes are kind of our integration of the concept of slides. So creating a scene is the equivalent of creating a slide in uh, PowerPoint or Google Slides, except we're starting with our script material, our transcript, our, our audio, or kind of our, our foundation. And creating a scene separates a section of our video so that we can change the layout or change visuals and templatize that layout if we want to, or control them altogether, kind of like a group format. Um, and really just edit a section of a video separate from the rest, which is really nice. So anytime you want to change the layout or change visuals of a section, you create a new scene by either clicking the slash button or just using slash on your keyboard, click slash command. I like to select a section of the script and press slash, 
and that'll give me two new scenes, one that continues on for the rest and then here. So if I wanted to create a zoom in on this second section that I just created right here, just part of the game and that phrase. Being reactive is unfortunately just part of the game. So I think I could select that scene that I just made, change my zoom, rearrange that however I like. And now I have being reactive is unfortunately just part of the game. So I think there's like, and I can start to add visuals that way. If I want to add some captions in on that section too, they all follow the transcript. Reactive is unfortunately just part of the game. So that, and I can rearrange these exactly how I want to and get them looking how I want, whether it's branded font or branded colors, uh, any kind of stylistic approach that I might might want to take with with captioning. That is that is wonderful, <laughs> especially for so and I guess a quick last question of like, who are some of the people that you see using this outside of necessarily creators? You remembered like you mentioned like associate producers, um, any who, yeah, who are some of the people that you see that are like getting really great value out of Descript? Mm, yeah, it, not to mention, you know, just the independent folks that want to create video and audio content these days. Um, but a lot of marketers, a lot of communicators at companies, so people that make screen recordings or product demos or video messaging. Um, so the, the equivalent of, of Loom, but the ability to edit it and make it really high production value. Anyone that's doing presentations, I've been doing tons of work with students lately too, at, uh, in video programs, audio programs, journalists, um, training programs that are working in multimedia now that, you know, just doing one form of media typically isn't their curriculum. Um, and our, our media producers that are out there, whatever kind of content that you're creating, whether it's for your website or for your company, um, if you're in in, uh, in broadcast, there's there's a, a lot of use cases for for Descript these days. Awesome! Yeah. Thank you so much for this demo. And producers, this is your chance. You've just seen Descripted action, so go ahead and submit your questions. And also remember, voting is going to be very important today because we have a plethora of questions, and those that are upvoted will be the ones that will get through the quickest. All right, Bill, let's get into this. Okay, the first one comes from John Fultz in Sealing Scopes, Pennsylvania. Do you have any plans that could be used by educators? I teach at a college, and a simple plan to help students learn to use Descript would be very helpful. Yes, we have that currently. Uh, if you go to our website, we have an EDU page, education page, and we have discounted education plans and drives, uh, both for nonprofit and education. And we also offer free training for schools, classes, anything like that. And I would join your class and we would do something similar to this. Kevin, I think you're still screen sharing. I don't know if you want to be on camera yeah, for this. I'm happy to, sure. Next question. Next one comes to us from Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia. Descript is great for remote collaboration when editing. What is the best workflow for remote audio recording in real time? Mm, great question. We don't, I'll say, uh, yet have a remote recording solution built in, uh, but we have integrations with our friends at Squadcast and Riverside, those two remote recording solutions, and you can 
port your files from their cloud right over to ours, never have to download any files. And so you finish up a recording, finish up an interview, click edit in Descript, and it will drop those files from their cloud to ours. And you can start editing quickly, just like that. Next question. Nice. Jonas Detel in Stuttgart, Germany is up next. He says, is there an API one can use to upload videos directly into Descript? Mm, we have a Zapier integration as well. So if you have a folder drive server set up, you can create a destination uh, project in Descript or drive in Descript and then a source folder. So you can, as you drag and or save video and audio into that folder, Zapier will set it up for you. Awesome. Next question. Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach says, for those of us working from pre-written scripts, can we start a new project by first uploading the script, then display the script like a teleprompter while recording, and then have the transcription compare the recording to the script? Ooh, great, great question. The last part, uh, not yet. We're working on a version two of our, what we call it replace script track. So um, the first portion of your workflow, yes, you can copy and paste text from anywhere on your computer directly into Descript in write mode that I showed you. And you can record using that as a teleprompter. Look at the script as you're going. It also live transcribed for you. So you'll see your transcription show up as you're recording, edit it as you're going to, if you want to do multiple takes, whichever. Uh, and then the V2 of edit, uh, edit, excuse me, replace transcript, replace script track will be you taking your recording copying it or cutting it and pasting it onto your script and it will correct the transcript from your original narration scripting that you did do any alignment that needs to happen um, but basically replace your script with your recorded media but that's coming soon next question john fultz in ceilings grove pennsylvania descript can be super powerful in professional video workflows where you can easily uh, export back to Premiere and Final Cut. I think your training videos and marketing should do more to emphasize that. So it's comment more than a question. Mm, thanks for the feedback. I'll pass it along. Next question. Jeff Cohen, Miami Beach, Florida. Jeff says, any future plans to support the use of third-party plugins for audio processing? No distinct plans, but it's common feedback. It's feedback that I shared when I started the company. Um, so please go and vote on that feature request at feedback.descript.com and share it with folks in your network to also vote on it. Next question. Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia. Will Descript allow more advanced emoting by its overdub voices in the future? Some other AI apps allow you to tweak words or even phenomes to get the right emphasis. <laughs> yes, uh, we're gonna be building on that. We currently have styles built in. Um, for those that don't know, overdub is our text-to-speech generator. So whether you're using a stock voice that comes free with Descript or creating a, a synthetic AI voice of yourself, uh, you can also create styles based on the audio that you've used to train that model. So we, we currently have that and we are constantly iterating on it as well. Um, and we have some really exciting updates to, to our overdub feature coming in the next quarter. Alex? Can you tell us a little bit more about how you build a, a voice, how you build, like you want your own voice to be able to use for overdubbing. What's the process in making that actually happen? Yeah. Liberty's okay if I... I was going to say, I was like, yeah. we just started questions. I know there's an overdub demo. So yes, definitely go ahead. All right. Sounds great. So uh, great question. Overdub, like I've mentioned, is our, our synthetic AI voice creation tool, text-to-speech tool. And it's two parts. One is 
creating a voice, which I'll show you in a second, but I'll start with using a voice, whether it's a stock voice or your own. So I can start writing and show that in Descript. I can write script right in, uh, and by assigning a speaker label, I can have this labeled out. So it's just a speaker label, right? I, mean, I could just say Kevin and it's labeled for me. But what I can also do is use an AI voice that I have here. So we have stock voices. There's a bunch here and they'll generate for you. Um, you can audition them. Life is like a camera. Just focus on what's important. Life is like a camera. Bunch of great options there. Those are free and for you to use uh, however you like in anything you produce. But I also have some voices that I've created for myself, some voices that colleagues have shared with me, um, which is incredibly powerful. So there's one model here is just using text-to-speech, writing script, generating audio using uh, a voice here. And I have one for like basically every mic I own um, in every different environment. And within each voice that I've created, I've also created styles. And I'll show you that process real quick in a second too. I have a bunch of different options for styles that will give me different output depending on what I'm looking for. A lot of times I'm producing content that's very instructional, a little bit more monotone, serious, less playful. And I have those there. I also have some excited, happy versions. And it's really helpful to be able to, to generate this. Additionally, if I've recorded directly into Descript, I'll use my microphone here. I'll drop in my speaker label and I'll transcribe that. I can record directly into a project as well. All right, here we go. Uh, thanks for having me, Office Hours. Really awesome being here today. And I will see you next time. Let's excuse me, transcribe for me real quick. All right, here we go. Uh, thanks for having me. I can edit that text. Thanks for having me, Office Hours. Really awesome being here today, and I will see you next time. And you can make corrections and edits as well. So if you're working through here and you want to make any kind of correction to what you've you've made, um, you've recorded, you can do so using this feature as well. So the first one is, here's my, my text-to-speech model that I used. Thanks so much for having me, Office Hours. Very uh, <laughs> regal sounding. And here, thanks for having me, Office Hours. Really awesome being here today. I can make corrections using this overdub. This will generate the same way, but I can create a little bit more uh, transparent edits within my audio that I've recorded as well. So it's not just starting with script and generating 100% uh, synthetic audio from script. It's being able to make little corrections, keep things evergreen, everything like that. So this is, I'll play this when this is done processing. This is the process of using our overdub feature. Creating your voice is really just taking any audio or video that you have recorded, whether it's Indescript or you could just record your own script. Um, we have a training model back at our drive view and you can just copy and paste text from existing uh, existing recordings that you have in Descript, or you can pull in files from your computer, or you can just press record in that training spot and uh, record a script. We, we give you a 
David Attenborough script uh, that you can that you can read through. And yeah, that's very helpful. And just again, pulling in just some of the <laughs> the chat community, even saying like Sky mentioned, I can see this used by a volunteer that is not an editor, but can access this tool without all of the heavy iron editing tools. So mm-hmm. having people on the on the team to be able to to work through this as well. That's right. A lot of times teams that are working with a host or working with talent, uh, they'll work into their contract, the ability to make corrections, or even just, you know, they want to get a script together and be able to sit around for a table read and not have anyone actually read scripts. Uh, using this is, is really helpful. Let's give us a listen. I might need to do some finessing, but we'll, we'll see. Thanks for having me, Office Hours. It was really great being here today, and I will see you next time. Really pretty okay. I could make some edits though and get this sounding a little bit better. So some of that cleaning up, like just the sound there can be done in the script is what you're saying. That's right. That's right. The office hours, it was really great being here. T- and is it able to match the resonance? I mean, so what we hear, right, what I hear right now is less of a, an issue, but more of a change in the in the, you know, the overall environmental sound. Yeah. Uh, well, this is, yeah, this is my raw recorded audio. So I might be doing some right. mixing, you know, using our um, voice enhanced tool called Studio Sound. I've also would probably want to match the microphone. I just got this microphone yesterday, so I haven't created a voice with this mic. But this is from my Shure 87C, so it's close, um, but it's not exactly there. So, you know, there's some manual work that I would do. Uh, there's some, perhaps some mixing that I would do if I wanted to match resonance. I might throw an EQ really quick and, and adjust any resonance that I need to. Or I might just be saving that for Pro Tools when I'm mixing. Um, so, yeah, I have a varied number of decisions to make. Um, but once I have my voice for this mic, uh, maybe I'll come back on and I'll, I'll show you that and it'll, it'll be perfect. Would love that. Next question. Next one comes to us from Mickey Makachor in uh, the Philippines. How does this script deliver to Pro Tools? Is exporting an AAF, EDL, or XML possible? And does it maintain uh, broadcast wave metadata such as time code, role, take scene, and channel for name? Great questions. Uh, it, we export as an AAF. So you get a packaged up AAF and then do a session data import into Pro Tools. It'll keep uh, all of your raw files in the original state, sample rate, bit depth. We don't, I mean, Pro Tool, time time code is uh, funny in Pro Tools. There's no metadata attached when you're exporting from the AAF, uh, which is a limitation of AAF with our, our AAF um, service that we use. But it is all non-destructive, so you're pulling back edits um, in your tape and your timeline and Pro Tools and all of that is there. So you'll basically get a, an edited assembled piece that you've made in Descript, just like if you started it in Pro Tools. Um, raw cuts, no no fades, all of your audio in its original, original state, but with those edits that you've made. Next question. Tom Tatum in Washington, DC. Can you scrub on the timeline? Certainly, yeah. I guess I should keep my, my screen share up really quick, huh? So thanks scrubbing office 
During playback is here. You may or may not be able to hear it. Here today, it's cutting out a little bit. Um, for exist there. It seems a little bit jumpy right now. So maybe I might have just discovered a bug live. <laughs> and then with that scrubbing across the timeline, if you were to move, like you're also able to move some sections and that would then also move the captions or I guess the, the text around as well, correct? Certainly. Everything, every manipulation that you're doing to the text will also do to the underlying audio video and also captions that are going to be attached to this transcript as well. Kevin, do you Next. have quick, simple things like 2x if you have a lot of stuff to get through? Yep. Good. We have customized playback speed, so you can have whatever playback speed you'd like. Understood. Next question comes from Ken English in Buffalo, New York. What if Descript's transcription doesn't recognize a word, for example, a specialized medical term? Can the transcribed word be updated so that the transcriptions in the future would be accurate? Mm, great question. So you can make corrections in the script really easily. So if this needs to read as newsjacking, you can make that correction just to the text, just like that. You highlight a word and click correct. We also have this thing called a transcription glossary where I put in a lot of common proper nouns or acronyms or industry-specific terms, and Descript will keep an eye and an ear out for those and get them, get them right. Next question. Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida says, are AI DSing and plosive correction features coming to Descript? You already have extremely impressive audio tools like studio sound, audio leveling, volume automation, and more. These would be big time savers, big time savers. And yes, better to avoid first. Big time savers and big time savers. Uh, yes, <laughs> certainly. We have a lot of more, uh, a lot more audio repair plugins coming out, effects coming out, uh, pretty soon this year. Next question. Noah Sargent in Fullerton, California says, can you listen to the edit timeline in 2X or 1.5X? I think I jumped his question. Yeah. <laughs> the the excitement. Three, three dot menu here, this hamburger menu down there. Yeah, all the way to 3X. Uh, next question. Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois says, amazing, can Descript identify all of the ums and ahs and then remove those globally? That's right. So I showed that earlier in the beginning. I can go back. Let me just create a new. This stars menu here, which I've been calling the magic menu, this is where you can shorten word gaps, moments of silence. It'll shorten those to whatever uh, destination length you want. So any gap over a certain target will shorten that. And also remove filler words. Any of these or any combination of these, including repeated words. And you can choose to flat out delete them or use that strikeout feature to be able to see those edits in your script. You can also search for phrases using this search function here. Next question. Next one comes to us from Craig McFarlane in Boston, Massachusetts. How do you avoid odd cuts or jittery video when trimming based on text? Yeah, it's a great, a great question. The common 
misconceptions that the script edits for you, <laughs> which is not the case. It just makes editing a bit easier and more enjoyable. So you still have to call upon your skills and experience as an editor to make sound cuts and cuts that work well in your media. Um, but using things like scenes to add in B-roll, perhaps from our stock media library uh, or an image, great way to cover up the jump cut. Jump cuts are also in completely in a lot of media. So embracing the jump cut is big, um, but using Zoom, stock media, video, GIFs, images to cover up edits. Um, or also just using the timeline to kind of finesse your edits as well can be really helpful. So we offer things like scene transitions that are just like transitions between uh, slides in a PowerPoint Google slide. You can transition in or out between scenes, and you can also add edit point transitions, whether it's crossfade, cross blur, um, and that's just between an edit point audio and video in your timeline. So a lot of options. And speaking of editing, can we take a, a moment to even look at the um, the graphics part of things that, that you mentioned, like even that the design elements, even how some people are using it from a social perspective, because there are templates. I was yesterday years old when I was like templates, we've been designing all of our, our old graphics. So if we could talk through that, that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. So we have this templates gallery up here where you can templatize your own scenes. Um, so I've, you know, I have a bunch of really great templates that I use all the time. Here's one for this video from, from Chili Piper. Um, and so you can drop in templates, match orientation, or, you know, change the orientation of your video if you want. It brings in all of your visual elements that you've saved really great and easy. And we also have a bunch of free templates in our templates gallery here whether it's caption style or a specific slide type, multicam templates, there's there's so much in here. Um, and this is all free to use in, in the script. And, and how would, if someone wanted to like create their own design, yeah, not templates based, like we're starting from scratch, what would that look like? Certainly. So that's, Here's our, our from scratch video, completely unedited, right? We just brought it in. Uh, we might want to add some visual elements or change the orientation of the video. I'll do that real quick. Kind of get this looking how I want. Maybe we'll add some captions in. Cool. And perhaps uh, we'll drop a background as well. For those watching, you can see the very TikTok-ish and reels <laughs> styles and shorts yeah. taking place in real time here at Office Hours. So this background, and here we go now. Reactive is unfortunately just part of the game. So I think there's like some percentage of all of our days. Cool. So this is, this is okay. So these, these three visual elements I just added, uh, well, or changed. I changed the orientation. I added that background. And I dropped in some captions that are going to follow in the script. What I can do is right-click this and save it to a template and go through the, pop, the process to save this template and, and publish it real quick. And then after I do that, it will be available in the My Templates gallery that I can start to use on any project I, I work on. 
same for the rest of my team as well. So I can drop in and save templates there and they'll be accessible to my whole team. So great way to save branded material, branded content, settings for consistency, um, all that kind of stuff. Awesome. Yeah. Next question. Comes from Brian Enright. He says, does it work best on PC or Mac? Both, both. Yeah, same functionality on both PC and Mac. Next question. Alexander Knight, Vancouver, British Columbia, wonders if there is a dark mode for the app. Oh, yes, certainly. Go into your app settings and follow your system or just change to dark. Nice. Next question. Noah Sargent, Fullerton, California, here on the panel. Can the timeline be imported back into an NLE like Premiere, DaVinci Resolve, and so forth? Yeah, Premiere and Final Cut are our NLE export options here. Going to the export, timeline, Premiere, Final Cut. And bring that right in, Alex. And what's the relationship between the two? So you have those exports. Um, is it one way to Premiere and Final Cut, or can you bring it, you know, have it kind of go back and forth between the two, between Descript and, and those NLEs? Yeah, it's currently one way, currently one way. Um, but I, I could foresee a future where we create a round trip where we can work back and forth. The beauty of, of my workflow, at least with, with Pro Tools, is I can continuously do session data imports from AF exports from Descript so I can add to my edits as I go without replicating my audio files and whatnot. Um, not well, entirely it, sure of the same process in Final Cut Premiere, but yeah. Yeah, because I can see kind of a lot of times when we're working on podcasts where we are getting the content, we get a review, and we want to edit that out before we do any work on the, you know, like, like get, get all that stuff out of the way before I start working on this. Yeah. And so I can see it going through it. It's fine that it goes one direction, but I can see it going, wanting to go back, back and forth if there's additional edits. You know, a lot of times our workflow is like right after a show, we put it up on Frame.io and then they, you know, people put their notes in. Now, is there a way to do that where people can put just notes into the, into the process? Yes. So you, you can do it in app, show that you can drop in some, some comments or you can also mark up the script however you like with markers or inline notes, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. We also create this external published page as a web link. And you can publish this. It'll give you a link for a browser. And it'll show up with script and video. So you can share this link with anyone. They can drop in comments as well. So you can get like a nice edited external version for a stakeholder or someone who's reviewing. Right. Um, and then be able to go back to Descript and make those edits based on the feedback. Can they add the, can they do the kind of the overdubbing there on that web page, or is that something they just, they just say, well, I need to have this change to this or. Yeah, this is, this is just like a Frame.io viewer. Yep. So it's just video and, and transcript that follows along. Um, all overdub work needs to be in the app. Yep. That makes sense. Yeah. Go ahead, Noah. And yeah, so that that export back to Final Cut or to Premiere, that's non-destructive. So like, could you readjust the edits within the timeline in Premiere or whatever the NLE is? 100%. Awesome. Yep. Yep. It'll have all your edit points multi-tracked out if you had multi-track files and non-destructively pull back or peel back edits. Next question. Next one comes from Sky Gleason in Seattle. Every, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, here we go. What are the file types that you can export? H.264, MPEG-4, ProRes? Great questions. So we currently are only exporting uh, as MP4s, but resolution up to 4K 
low, medium, and high quality. You can visit our help center to see uh, additional specs on that as well. And then for audio quality, uh, up to 48K. And we also have uh, high rate of bit depth as well. Next question. Noah Sargent's back again with everyone's favorite question. How is the product priced? Mm, great question. We have uh, monthly and annual pricing. You can go to descript.com slash plans. And based on features, transcription hours each month, a bunch of different factors, uh, it's anywhere from free, there's a free plan, uh, to 12, between 12 and $30 a month, depending if you pay monthly or annually. Next question. Next one comes to us from Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia. Is there an API where someone with their own web-based video editor could fully integrate Descript? Yes. Yes, we have an overdub API currently, um, not for the editor just yet, but we have an overdub API. And if you go to our, our website and search API, it'll pop up. There's a great way you'll get a, a key generated for you and get set up. Next question. Craig McFarlane in Boston, Massachusetts. Although a wide variety of people can use Descript, do you have a sweet spot or a target customer profile? Mm. It's a great question. It's a bit um, out of my wheelhouse. I work mainly with podcasters uh, these days. So podcast studios, big publishers, you know, iHeart, NBC, Gimlet. Um, but we, since our release of our redesign, which we've been calling Storyboard, which is what you're seeing here, is a really going after video producers, folks that are making video for their job, for social, for YouTube. Um, and it, the, the style of content is wide and, and varied, um, pretty vast. But anybody who makes audio and video content and anybody who wants to do it really quickly, really easily and collaboratively as well. Next question. Jeffrey Powers in Madison, Wisconsin. Any thoughts of a way to cache files so that work can be done offline without a third-party editor? Mm, good question. Our offline editing is a, a bit limited right now. Uh, we have, you can certainly edit offline, but you won't have access to a lot of features like transcription. So if you have something already, a project already set up, uh, you can go in and do a lot of editing the next time you have internet connection, it'll sync for you. Um, but it is a web-based tool. So having a strong internet connection vastly improves your, your performance and experience. And Kevin, I just wanted to make sure that, so we've gone through the overdub tutorial, you've laid the groundwork, we did some graphics or just building something from scratch. Was there one more that you had? If not, I'm highly, we had this conversation last week on Office Hours, or just even audiograms, what that looks like since that's a, a trending style and we have a lot of podcasters in our community. Yeah, absolutely. So a, a really common workflow is taking a section of your text and duplicating it to a new doc or new composition. And that creates just a new version of that, of that edit. It's in our, our compositions list right here in this dropdown and taking one of our audiogram templates here, applying it. Our pleasure. Jay, let's start with yourself. Can you get and you have a great starting point to get yourself a nice branded audiogram that you can edit? All you know, all of these are obviously editable in any type of way, whether it's style, color, um, hex RGB colors, add a background, change your company logo, whatever it might be, um, really quickly, just two clicks, just like that. Awesome. Next question. 
Next one comes to us from Noah Sargent again in Fullerton. Do you have a multi-user plan or a business plan, something like that? Yes. So each drive is organized by the number of members. So my drive, I have a, a few folks that I work with and they are all editors. So they have the ability to f- transcribe, import, edit, export, you know, unrestricted. And it's the same price um, per editor on your drive. So you'll just, if it's 15 bucks a month for one editor, it would be 30 bucks a month for two depending on the plan or if you're using the creator plan, 12 bucks a month, 24 for two editors. But I also have the ability to invite folks as a basic member, which is free, and they can just view, listen, and comment. So awesome for folks that don't need to import, transcribe, and edit, but need to give feedback, need to review, drop in comments, collaborate that way. Yeah, we found that very handy for for clients to just like put their comments on or even editors or what not editors meaning like copy editor change this change that tremendous helpful mm-hmm. next question mm, great alton christensen in new york city on the plans what's the difference between editors and seats and how are do they impact pricing you may have just covered that yeah it's exactly that editor is a seat um, but you can also have a basic seat which is free next question Alexander Knight, Vancouver again. How would uh, Descript work on an older 12-core Xenon Mac Pro with an 8-gigabyte GPU and 64 gigabytes of RAM? Pretty great. Pretty great. <laughs> that, that, that was easy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 64 gigs of RAM, you'll be all right. Yeah. Next question. Noah Sargent, Fullerton, right back with, could this handle a 45-minute news show with B-roll and graphics throughout? Certainly. Yeah. A lot of the the podcast teams that we're working with or folks that are working on short film work or video work, they're pulling in several interviews that are long, um, multiple speakers, archival footage, um, B-roll footage, and building out their projects with a lot of media. So yeah, it'll, it'll handle it quite well. Is, is there anything that is like too, like that you've seen maybe stress test or too much just following up with with Noah's question so is that like okay it starts around that two hour three hour mark why anyone would have anything that long maybe conference footage but really they should break it up but if they don't how how does the script handle that yeah I mean podcast teams press record often and record for three or four hours at a time we do start to see some performance uh degradation with multi-track interviews that are three and four hours long. So we've been recommending to them just, you know, press stop and record again halfway through. Um, And also when you get a project that's, you know, incredibly large uh, gigabyte wise in in like the 20, 30 gig, gig frame, we can start to see some slowing down. But in our app settings, we have the ability to optimize video files and optimize your computer storage. So we'll create proxies for you, basically, um, our version of, of proxies that will improve your editing and playback experience. And then when you go to export, it'll re-download all of your original files for whatever DAW or NLE you're going to. Alex? And so if I'm adding B-roll to a to um, a scene, and then it, it does it attach it to where it, what it's attached to there, you know, so that if I edit something, let's say I take out some space or I cut something out earlier in the thing, does the B-roll slide with the with the uh, with the text? 
Yeah, absolutely. It, it all stays really, really well linked. So if I have a, a scene here and I drop in some, some B-roll, that B-roll is there. I have a bunch of layers now that are on this. Like we all need to hop on the latest track. If I make any edits to my script, it'll keep everything synced. Marketing, we all need to hop. And that B-roll will be dropped in exactly where I had it, but I'll keep my script intact um, as I'm editing through. And Noah? Yeah, and then as far as like multi-camming, I'm, I'm assuming we can do like a first pass in this program and then take it to a non-linear editor and then switch between cameras from there. That's right. Yeah, we have a, we have a multi-cam feature in here in auto auto assign scenes by Active Speaker. So if you have two or more files from a multi-cam recording, uh, it'll automatically full screen and, and change your camera angle for you if you'd like. Um, but the workflow for most folks is uh, doing their multi-cam work in their NLE. Next question. Alexander Knight is back again from Vancouver. Is all the processing done on the local CPU or GPU, or is there a data being sent to the cloud and back? And how much of the GPU is taking being taken advantage of? It's a mix. Uh, you'd have to reach out to our engineers to get the, the real answer on that. But it's, it depends on the process and the feature. Um, it is both CPU intensive and cloud intensive, uh, in, like internet connection as well. So things like transcription or processing studio sounds, um, those are generating overdub. It's a combo of, of your computer and your, your internet. Um, but a lot of the editing and kind of zoom work or transitions is main. It's, that's all going to be uh, based on your, your computer. Alex. And I'm sorry, I'm going to take you back to the last question for just a second. Oh, we usually okay. don't do this, but I, I have one thing I got to know. Yeah. So, if I have a multi, if I have a multi-track video and I cut it and I say, just cut to the person talking all the way through yep. and I export that out, is that sending that out as, as just raw tracks or is that sending it out as a multi-cam file back to Final Cut or Premiere, you know, that it's packaged as an actual multi-cam file? It's not packed as a multi-cam file. Okay, it's so packed. It's um, you'll, you'll have your edits in your timeline, but you won't mm -hmm. get the multi-track information. If you stay end-to-end -end in Descript, you can keep, obviously, all, all the multi-track and uh, multi-cam work you do will stay there, but um, not yet for those. Because that would be pretty ninja. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah, I was like looking at, so we've got layers, like we're able to move layers around? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Courtney? Yeah, and if I was wondering if you bring in a, a multi-track broadcast wave file, a poly file with, a, say, six channels of ISOs, each character's on a separate ISO channel on a wireless mic, does it preserve the metadata of the character names that are in that broadcast wave file? Uh, does it deal with the metadata in a broadcast wave file, or does it? Do we have to just go in and label it manually once you bring it in? All metadata file names, any any data attached to the files before you come into Descript will remain attached to those files when you export out your, your timeline after. But it doesn't uh, parse the metadata necessarily. And, and it doesn't, uh, for example, yeah. name the, typically in broadcast wave files, a lot of broad, uh, you know, production sound mixers will tag the ISO files with the name of the character in it. And that goes in the IXML chunk of the broadcast wave file or in the BEXT chunk of the broadcast wave file. So it doesn't parse those chunks, the XML or the 
uh, to pull out character names per channel uh, to automatically bring it into Descript when it's right. creating its timeline. Right. No, it, it would just be that manual process of adding the speaker label, um, mm-hmm. but the file that you add will also keep file name and, and metadata, but it won't parse it out for you when you bring it in, unfortunately. So it'll reattach those chunks when you export. It will, yes. I see. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Next question. Ben English in Buffalo, New York is up with this. Where I work, there's a lot of concern on publishing data out to the cloud. Are the data centers in the U.S.? Yes. Yes, our backend is Amazon AWS. Wonderful. Well, that is our our final question for a dynamic hour with you, Kevin. Thank you so much for the demos um, going back and forth. So podcasting, video editing, um, sound, captions, social. Any last words for our community or anything you haven't covered that we need to go check out? Yes. Check us out on, uh, you join our community on Discord. Um, and there's just a wealth of information and knowledge share and events, training that happens there. Uh, and just go to help.descript.com to get more involved in all the stuff that we're doing. Or if you have more questions, we do weekly events, also different topics and trainings um, you can find there. And just stay connected and reach out how we can help. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kevin. And producers, thank you for your questions. And panelists, thank you for your feedback and your insights. And our back-end team, our production crew, for without which this would not be possible. And tomorrow we're talking about super sources and how they're a key part of all live shows and broadcasts. So we'll examine some of the best examples. If you want to know more about what's happening for the rest of the week, head over to Off hours.global and let me get back to how far the Tullock traversal we have gone 113,446 miles that is 182,573 kilometers that's more than 898 million bananas and 4.6 times around the earth. So thank you so much, everyone, for for tuning in and for participating. And we'll see you next time. Bye, y'all. Kevin, that that smoke that you're smelling is our our wallets catching fire. (laughs) Stop it. Stop it. (laughs) Great job, Kevin. That was so awesome. At the beginning of the show, it's the, not another subscription. And at the end of the show, it's like, okay, where's my credit card? Oh, that's so many comments coming in. They are saying how great a great session, brilliant tool. Thank you, Kevin. This was awesome. Oh, we whisper at the end of the show, so that's why this is happening. Yes. I was, just, I was whispering along too. I'm sure. I can do that. <laughs> Peer pressure, watch out. Right. All right, here we go. Awesome. All right, Kevin, that's a wrap. Take care. Bye, all. <laughs>